This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. I got something I want to talk about to you. Welcome to another edition of Communication Mixdown. I'm Liam Armstrong. For today's show, we'll be exploring a topic that needs particularly urgent attention. The Christchurch shootings represented a complete break with how far-right terrorism was communicated, with the Australian-born shooter an active participant in far-right online communities, his effective use of live streaming and releasing his manifesto online gave him his horrifying message, unprecedented reach and impact. Over the last week, we have seen the impact of his message in very real terms. On the morning of August 3rd, a lone shooter entered a Walmart in El Paso and opened fire. He killed 22 people. The suspect published a white nationalist anti-immigrant manifesto on social media immediately before the attack and said he was inspired by the Christchurch mosque shootings. Yesterday, another shooter opened fire in a mosque in Norway and was also claimed he was inspired by the Christchurch Manifesto. Something that uh, I think isn't particularly acknowledged when we discuss the Christchurch shootings and um, people who say they've been influenced and copied by them is the um, impact of both white supremacy but also the particular influence of Australian bred racism, which is generally not acknowledged in mainstream coverage of these attacks. The Christchurch shooter spent mo- um, most of his life in one of the most racially segregated areas in Australia and was a member of far-right Australian online groups such as the Antipodian Resistance. Today we'll be taking a closer look at this terrifying new reality and Australia's role within it. And our guest is Joshua Badge, an academic in philosophy at Deakin University and a writer who's been published some really excellent work in Eureka Street and um, other publications on the topic of the Australian far right and um, white supremacy in Australia. Welcome to the show, Joshua. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, no worries. Thank you for agreeing to be on. Um, so your first article for um, Eureka Street um, spoke about the savviness with which the far right um, infiltrated mainstream politics in Australia. Um, could mm-hmm. you expand on um, how they managed to do so? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. You know, the first kind of part of that question is to understand uh, what what I mean when I when I said savvy, and that's just that uh, far right nationalists, white supremacists, explicit fascists understand that their views are not necessarily uh, palatable to a mainstream audience, uh, but that they can phrase it in the same ideas, uh, the same theories, the same uh, conspiracies uh, in different terms that are more palatable. Uh, so in terms of how they do that, uh, it's really, I mean, it seems quite straightforward. It's really just about finding new ways of uh, repackaging old neo-Nazi 
and white supremacist ideas for mainstream consumption. Mm. Um, yeah, something I and that I know you've written on as well is the um, like the religious exemption and the um, right wing backlash against that. We've actually seen like the Australian recently announced they're going to open a section on their website dedicated to like exploring the gender wars with a like particular mm-hmm. view of invalidating trans identities. And we've also seen mm-hmm. figures from the far right, such as Mark Latham from One Nation, really like push that. Do you think that's an example, for example, of how the like far right ideas are being mainstream? Considering the far right, obviously. Um, have like a uh, particularly misogynistic and um, queerphobic generally. Yeah, I think that that's a very interesting uh, example to use. Uh, I think that there's, there's a few uh, very nuanced things to distinguish here. So I think that you know one very good example uh, of uh, the translation, the mainstreaming of a white supremacist idea into the mainstream would be the idea of white genocide and the many ways that that has uh, been coded or translated into uh, the Australian political landscape and the Australian media. I think that what's happening with this uh, focus, this emphasis on trans people, particularly on uh, LGBT rights, uh, gay marriage as well, uh, state schools, This represents, I think, almost the other side of the coin where large media institutions are uh, shifting their focus onto issues uh, that these far-right extremist groups are capitalising on in order to broaden their audience. Mm. So it's not necessarily that uh, there are very strong ideological uh, reasons why these groups uh, may uh, dislike or promote the hatred of trans people, for example. You know, uh, they have strong ideological uh, philosophies almost about racial superiority or about cultural superiority. Sexuality sits almost to the side of that. But what these groups have realised is that they can use these side issues to, as it were, bring people on board to their core ideas, if you will. So uh, people who are sceptical about multiculturalism, people who are uh, opposed to uh, trans rights, are, you know, essentially uh, being offered a a gateway into these more extreme beliefs uh, about cultural and racial superiority particularly. So I think that's what's happening uh, at the moment with, uh, these kind of uh, concerted uh, campaigns uh, opposing or framing uh, trans people and trans rights negatively. Um, they're not necessarily being uh, driven by explicit white supremacist belief, but they are being used by these groups uh, to their advantage, definitely. Mm. And on the topic of like the ideological commitments of the far right, um, obviously mm-hmm. one of the most significant modern tenets um, of their movement is white, white genocide and discussing that mm-hmm. and pushing that message um, through both like um, subversive and mainstream media platforms. Um, and we saw that obviously with like how there was um, a lot of discussion about the apparent genocide of white South African farmers in the Australian mm-hmm. media or also like Africa like the 
um, hysteria about supposed um, African gangs, um, but mm-hmm. also it also obviously is featuring quite regularly in the manifestos of um, far right shooters. Um, you've mm-hmm. written a lot on this, like why, like has a white genocide become such a central tenant of the message of the far right? Uh, I think you know why that's become a central message is just that it's effective, mm. you know. So the idea of white genocide, uh, this idea that immigration or interracial mixing or low birth rates are uh, an existential threat to uh, white people uh, is a, a kind of a rallying call. It's a way to motivate uh, political action. Uh, so it's one way of recruiting new people into these groups to convince uh, people that they are under threat. Um, and it is also a way of uh, motivating violence, as we've seen. So it's this, uh, you know, idea that keeps popping up in these manifestos. And I think that, you know, so on the one hand, you know, there's this ideological commitment to it because uh, it is quite persuasive to its target audiences. And I think that the reason why we have seen it again and again is because it's an extremely... Uh, malleable idea, this, you know, broken down into its uh, component parts. It's an us versus them idea. And that idea can be translated across a number of different contexts. So, you know, when we look at far-right groups, there may be a number of uh, different kind of categories uh, in terms of what their primary interest is in, what their primary narratives are. There could be uh, anti-Islam groups, there could be cultural superiority groups, or they could be more explicit uh, anti-Semitic white superiority groups. But the kind of thing that they all share is some kind of... uh, apocalyptic idea of uh, some kind of threat that we face. So for the anti-Islam groups, obviously the uh, threat is the threat of uh, Islam, of Muslims, of Sharia law, um, you know, in in terms of those cultural superiority groups, the threat that we face are these kind of quote-unquote attacks on Western civilization, uh, revisions of the, uh, you know, literary and philosophical and artistic canon, uh, critiques uh, against uh, historical figures, so on and so forth. Uh, And then this drills down to that kind of core and initial idea that comes from those uh, neo-Nazi and fascist groups of more explicit white genocide, that idea. And so, you know, I guess uh, to summarise all that, the the reason is really twofold. Firstly, it is quite an effective rhetorical tool. Uh, You know, it doesn't really rely on any kind of special understanding. You don't need to be an expert in anything to kind of understand this us versus them uh, narrative about threat. And it translates across all of these different narratives, all of these different interests, all of these different issues, whether it's uh, immigration, uh, whether it's uh, culture, whether it's race rhetoric. So it's just an extremely uh, powerful tool for these groups. Yeah, and I think um, 
particularly concerning is perhaps, I would argue, more than any other country, like far-right racism and ideas have infiltrated the Australian um, mainstream. And in fact, like mm. in an article for Minjin, you said that you the following, and I thought it was quite um, a powerful passage. Over the last 20 years, Australia's hostility towards difference has become its defining characteristic. This happening is no accident, but rather the result of deliberate practices, a product of political rhetoric and media culture, which forms the public imaginary. Indeed, our interests as a community have never been so patriarchal and chauvinist. Ideas have never been so viable. The media cycle gives the impression that each episode, sensational in its own right, is an anomaly. Behind that is an uninterrupted threat which weaves through our history. To make sense of it, we must first grasp the constitution of the settler state as one founded fundamentally on white supremacy. Um, So obviously um, we're a show that explores communication. You spoke in that passage about the media culture and the media cycle and the role they have had to play Mm in um, that. Could you expand a bit on that? Yeah, I guess there's really two things to, um, there's two main things there. Firstly, is to talk about um, kind of uh, the kinds of things that the media are publishing um, and to think about the way that they frame everyday things. So, you know, if we look at, uh, if we're talking about opinion, um, then take, for example, Andrew Bolt's infamous article uh, bemoaning a tidal wave of immigrants um, who, you know, refuse to assimilate, to um, form, uh, you know, in this kind of rhetorical idea, quote-unquote, ethnic enclave. You know, a piece like that doesn't necessarily say white genocide, but that's the idea that, you know, uh, diversity is threatening. And then when we look across to more kind of uh, reportage uh, news items, um, the way that stories about crime, the way that stories about uh, unrest are reported, um, can really frame people's understanding about uh, what race and what immigration mean uh, in Australia. So, you know, the kind of invention of the media narrative of African gangs uh, was definitely, you know, a, a strong rhetorical tool uh, used by the government uh, in an election, but also uh, capitalised on by these groups as a kind of recruitment tool, because again, it's the same kind of us versus them narrative of uh, threat. Um, so, you know, a, a media culture is, which is deeply Islamophobic, which is very, has a very superficial understanding of how to um, sensitively pass out issues around race or report uh, on issues that have a racial element um, that is unwilling to recognise the limitations of its constituency in the sense that, you know, media in Australia is very much a uh, middle-class profession, Um, you know, lots of people coming from uh, private education, but also extremely white. Um, So you you have all of these things baked into Australia's media apparatus, and what you have is something that's, you know, quite a a blunt tool uh, to pass out the kinds of issues that liberal democracies are facing in the 21st century around the rights of the far right. And, you know, not only are parts of the media directly contributing to that rise, but the parts that aren't 
also not necessarily doing a very good job of analyzing and dissecting what's happening and why. Definitely. And I think um, the the role of Australian racism in the media, like upholding those racist narratives, is especially relevant today because we see this Australian model of racism being exported all over the world. Like refugee processing in Australia has been a horrifying Mm -hmm. regime for quite a while. And now we see like people in the US calling their border regime concentration camps also. And Scott Morrison Mm -hmm. saying, well, they've finally caught up with Australia. Um, You wrote an article on um, government hypocrisy on Anning and fascism, which I found quite Mm -hmm. um, interesting. The hypocrisy of the Australian political and media and social establishment condemning fascists like Mm -hmm. Anning whilst running like essentially what are offshore concentration camps. Um, Could you Mm -hmm. explain on that article and what you explored? Yeah, for sure. You know, I guess, in a sense, one of the things that, as a philosopher, uh, I often encounter when I'm teaching uh, political philosophy is this idea of a kind of um, just world bias, the assumption that uh, the world is a just place, good people uh, get bad outcomes, uh, uh, I'm sorry, bad people get bad outcomes, good people are rewarded. And this often translates into a kind of assumption that our country um, is inherently good and would never do bad things. And so there's this bizarre situation in which Australia uh, as a state has resurrected wartime internment of civilians uh, in the form of offshore processing and is just completely unwilling to recognise what that means. Uh, So as you say, you know, people, many people recognise, you know, uh, camps that are uh, ill-fitted, that have a high concentration of people in them, uh, that are made up of undesirables, of uh, political prisoners even. Um, in the Australian case, where people have died, where people have been tortured, um, are very obviously things that we would call internment camps or concentration camps. Um, you know, in terms of the hypocrisy politically and, and in the media around that, you know, the media... The role of the media is to, you know, uh, hold power accountable and to um, mediate truth for large audiences. But the extent to which the media can do that while it's using government euphemisms for these processes, you know, by saying illegal immigrants, you know, in reality, no one is ever illegal. It is perfectly legal to seek asylum, to be a refugee. Uh, When they, uh, you know, when an outlet calls it an offshore processing centre, really that's just a euphemism. It's it's state propaganda, you know. No one's applications are being processed. Uh, It's not a centre in the sense that it's a, a flashy, very expensive outfit you know, multiple international organisations have condemned the conditions of inhumane. So, you know, the media, you know, publishing pieces about, uh, you know, criticising Anning's quite uh, explicit appeals to uh, fascism is just, you know, uh, calling the pot kettle black, as it were. And I guess this is doubly true for the kind of political regime, you know, So there was a kind of moment in in the Senate and in the Australian Parliament where uh, left and right, where Labor and Liberal could come together and say, you know, we reject uh, this call for a return to white Australia. Um, 
but that's overlooking the fact that both of these parties uh, support uh, offshore internments. You know, they support uh, a system of imprisoning civilians who have committed no crime and, and done no wrong. Uh, so, you know, to point the finger at Annie and say that, you know, his explicit avowal was wrong and not really in the character of Australia, um, you know, wasn't so much blind as it was a political manoeuvre. You know, what that allowed these political parties to do was to whitewash their own policies and their own conduct and their own rhetoric and say, you know, this is bad, this isn't us, um, when really they've been saying much of the same now for at least 20 years. Um, so, you know, uh, definitely some more work to be done in that regard before uh, they can... Uh, hold a candle to adding and, and say that there's something different. There certainly is. Um, and we'll be back um, with Joshua in just a moment. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japarung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarung traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarung country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. Um, welcome back to Communication Mixdown. I'm Liam Armstrong, and if you're just joining us, I'm speaking to Joshua Badge, a lecturer in Deakin University and um, a writer, um, and we're speaking with him today about the far right, the media's role within it, and the particular brand of Australian white supremacy that has a role to play in many recent horrifying events. Um, so, Joshua, um, obviously the Christchurch shooter, um, he was Australian. He's um, already mm-hmm. in some way inspired some copycats. Um, he was heavily mm-hmm. involved in online far-right spaces and published his uh, mm-hmm. manifesto online. Um, he also, mm-hmm. like... Even I could see, like, my friends, like, when the Christchurch attack happened, said they um, unfortunately, ca- like, saw a bit of the live stream, saw his manifesto. Like, mm. why What? Why do you, what do you think is behind, like, obviously this need for a lot of these sh- um, white supremacist shooters to, like, how they're using the media to, like, even through often the media reporting on it, getting such a large platform for their ideas and how that's, yeah, often, like, resulting in people inspired by those events? Yeah, I think there's really, uh, really fascinating uh, thing to think about the, what is being communicated and to whom with these manifestos. You know, uh, in a way, there's something quite narcissistic about uh, manifestos in that they are a kind of, uh, you know, a cheap, almost desperate plea for notoriety. You know, they're a way to distinguish... Uh, violence from, you know, uh, the rest of the violence that's happening. You know, there are hundreds of mass shootings in the US every year. How is one going to uh, make one stand out? But they're also quite 
I, I always use the term savvy because, uh, you know, they're extremely dense, convoluted documents, very laden with meaning in the sense that, you know, so the Christchurch shooter, for example, his manifesto was more than 74 pages long. So it was, you know, an extremely lengthy tirade. And it was laden with very obscure references, jokes, memes. Um, and what these did is that they observed uh, they serve to obscure meaning at times. So, you know, there was lots of um, lots of things written in the manifesto that were ironic or, or meant uh, as a joke um, that media outlets, outlets took quite seriously. And so this was a kind of practical joke being played on them. Um, but that's also doubles as a strategy to further white supremacist ideas in that, you know, these media institutions uh, that don't have a grasp on the kinds of language and language games that these far-right groups play with each other um, mean that they are often inadvertently um, furthering white supremacist narratives or white supremacist ideas without even realising it. The other thing to say about that is that it's, you know, that, that kind of strategy about getting ideas out uh, through memes and jokes without the media realising it's one thing that's happening, but also kind of indicates that the manifestos are not primarily for a mainstream audience. You know, they're not a kind of pamphlet that uh, these groups might uh, disseminate, for example, at a political rally uh, if they were trying to gain adherence. Um, they're mostly targeted at, uh, you know, the uh, uh, already converted, as it were. Um, so they're targeted at uh, other um, often uh, isolated white men who frequent um, you know, forums like 8chan uh, in order to specifically motivate that violence to act as inspiration. Um, so, you know, definitely there's a, a huge problem there in terms of uh, what's being communicated and to who. Um, absolutely. Um, and as you said, uh, Joshua, it's very crucial that politicians, journalists and citizens do better and remain vigilant against attempts um, to normalise uh, hateful ideas. Um, so, yeah, I think people should keep that in mind and also the importance of um, fighting racism and being an anti-racist in Australia. Um, unfortunately, Josh, that's all we've got time for today, but it was an incredibly like, fascinating and I think um, important discussion. So thank you so, so much. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, and is there anything, like, yeah, definitely check out Joshua's stuff um, online. Um, so that's obviously all from Communication Mixdown this week. Um, and thanks once again to our special guest, Joshua Badge. Um, and don't forget, uh, we'll be back next um, week at the same time, Mondays at 6pm. So let's go out with a, um, this track from Billy Bragg, Waiting for the Great Leap Forward. Camelot for Jack and Jacqueline But on the Che Guevara Highway Filling up with gasoline Fidel Castro's brother spies A rich lady who's crying Over the luxury's disappointment So he walks over and he's trying To sympathise with her But he thinks that he should warn her That the third world is just around the corner 
so good union A scientist is blinded By the resumption of nuclear testing And he is reminded That Dr. Robert Oppenheimer's optimism fell First hurdle in the cheese pavilion, and the only noise I hear is the sound of someone stacking chairs and mopping up spilled beer, and someone asking questions and basking in the light of the Field minutes of the fanzine writer Mixing pop and politics He asks me what the use is I offer him embarrassment And my usual excuses While looking down the corridor Out to where the van is waiting I'm looking for the right 